Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. This morning we are continuing in the gospel according to Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 8 through 14. And if you would, please stand as I read the word of God. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Back about six to seven years ago, I was in college ministry, and every Tuesday night, I had the privilege of preaching to quite a number of college students on the campus of Lehigh University. And the church that was erected at the center of the university, whenever it was built, was massive. 800, 1,000 people built in marble and granite and stone, cathedral style, so very long, wings out and then up to an altar. It makes it look like a cross, viewing it from the top down. And the echo and the acoustics in that place were so good that for nine years, I preached there without a microphone. One day, my daughter wanted to come to one of these meetings that I preached at. And I believe I've told this story before, but it's so good, I'll tell it again. So she was, I don't know, six at the time, and... She loved college students, and we entrusted one of our favorite and most trustworthy students to take care of her during this time. So we sang, we had broken up into prayer groups, and we had prayed together, and it comes time for me to read the Word of God and then preach the Word to the college students. And I begin preaching, and I think, man, this is going well. Most of the time... I don't really think about it, but I think this is going well because my daughter's staying silent, right? This is great. But then I notice, because my very energetic daughter doesn't like sitting in one spot 
for very long, she starts squirming, right? And then the next thing I know, she's doing this number and throwing herself back into the chair. And I think, oh my goodness, we're about to lose it here. And I'm in the middle of making one of the most profound statements in the 20th century when my daughter yells out in the giant cathedral, Daddy, this is so boring. (laughs) Well, if I had any momentum in my sermon at that point, it was shot. But the reason that I bring that up this morning is because I wonder... Does the Christmas story ever get just boring to you? If you grew up going to church, which most of you have because we're in the Bible Belt in the U.S., you hear the Christmas story, you hear the same thing year in, year out. Baby Jesus lying in a manger, manger's like a feed trough. Right? And the angels and the shepherd and the wise men and gold and frankincense and myrrh, and no one still knows what those things are. That's a joke. But you keep hearing it over and over again. And I mean, if I'm being honest, like sometimes I get bored of it. Because it's the same thing over and over and over. My hunch is a lot of you get bored of it too. That's not a moral statement. I'm not up here shaming you because I'm in the same boat. I just want to state reality. Much like our confession of sin, right? Stating reality, a lot of times we get bored of it. And I think that we get bored of it because our perspective gets skewed. And I believe that an antidote to that boredom is found in today's text, specifically in verse 11. And this is the verse that we're going to be focusing on today that says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we're going to look at three things. Those three things in your bulletin are this. Born a Savior for you. Born a Savior for you. So let's, let's jump into the text together. You'll need a Bible, you'll need your, um, your bulletin, because we're going to look at the text a lot together, okay? So take a look, beginning in verse 11, as we look at born. In verse 11, it says, born, atekthe in Greek, and then in verse 12, even gives us a little more detail, as the angel is speaking to the shepherds, it says, you will find a baby So this word baby, brephos, in Greek, it can mean anything from a newborn infant or a child, even a little bit older, even to an unborn child, 
So a couple of examples of that, uh, just right around this, uh, back in Luke 1, 41, we see this word, and it says, when Elizabeth, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So right here, the baby here is an infant in the womb. It's an unborn child. And then later on, in the New Testament, Peter applies this to us in 1 Peter 2.2, when he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So it can mean anything from a literal baby in a womb to a newborn infant to a child, even um, non-literal. It can apply to those of us who need this, this milk this pure spiritual milk of the word. But going back to verse 11, when it says, for unto you is born, what is the significance of the fact that the Savior is born? God could have come down from heaven, ascended on high, showed up in glory, taken care of everything, but that's not what happened. What happened was that the Savior was born. The significance of it is this, that unlike in any other way that we could conceive God himself becomes man. The way that the Westminster Confession puts it is that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, took upon man's nature, yet without sin. This is why it was required that Jesus be born of a virgin so that he not inherit original sin. But hey, he took upon man's nature. That is, he had a body and a soul just like you. He was no more human than you, no less human than you. Human. That's what he was. And this is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. God himself incarnate. This comes from the Latin word incarnare. So from the Latin in, which means into, and carn, which means flesh. God, who is a spirit, comes into flesh. And the early church father, Augustine, puts it in this way, in a very poetic way. What's the significance of the fact that the Savior was born? Here's what Augustine says. Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that bread might hunger, that fountain thirst, that light 
sleep. That the way be tired. That truth might be accused of false witness. That teacher be beaten. That the foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer be wounded. And that life might die. The eternal Son of God could not be the Savior that we need, the Savior that the Old Testament points to, without Him becoming man. And we see this in the hymn, the TJ and the band were playing at the beginning of the service, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That is, in this child, do you know what you would see? You'd see a child. You would see an infant crying, nursing at his mother's breast, making dirty diapers, which is a parent's favorite. Mary loved it, right? What you would see is a child that looks the same as any other child. That's exactly what you would see. But as the hymn says, it veils the fact that he is the Godhead. It veils the fact that the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, has forever bound himself with humanity. So he's born. Now, to be fair, if you look at the background in the ancient Near East at this time, there were many conceptions about a god or gods, lowercase g, being incarnate. However, there was never a conception from any monotheist, that is, someone who believes in one and only one God, there was never a conception of any monotheist that the one true God over the entire universe would become man. And so when Jesus says something, like in John 8, 58, to the Jews, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And in that, he's referring back into Exodus when Moses asks this God, who should I say sent me? Say, I am sent you. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Am. That is, I am the one true God. If you're a polytheist at this time, like you believe in many gods, you're one of the Gentiles, and Jesus comes along and he says, I'm God, you would think, great. There's a whole bunch of folks who think that they're gods. Even our king, the Caesar, is a God incarnate, but... Jesus' claim to be God 
veiled in flesh, it made the Jews furious. This is why they crucified him. Because in their view, there was no way that the one true God of the universe would ever stoop to being born a man. But they were wrong. What they really needed and what you and I really need was God himself to be born as a man so that he could also be Savior. So that's our second point. First, born. Second, a Savior. We see this in verse 11. As it gives the titles pulled out here at the end of the verse for unto you this excuse me for unto you is born this day in the city of David and then here's the titles a savior who is Christ the Lord one thing that's really interesting and shocking about these three titles and actually rarely in the new testament or in the gospel accounts do you have Three titles like this, one right after another. Savior, Christ, Lord. What's interesting is the contrast between this. Savior, Christ, Lord, versus what was in the manger. There's a baby laying in a feeding trough to impoverished parents who are not married, He's wrapped, a lot of the songs say swaddling clothes, right? That's not really what it was. When we think swaddling clothes, I think about the swaddles that we put our kids in, right? And they slept so good, and they were cute. No, think more like a mummy. This will change how you view, like, mummy movies in the future, right? We think of mummies wrapped in cloths. Why is that? Because they're too poor to afford like a big sheet of cloth. So the contrast between that is pretty astounding. When I ask the question about this Savior, what Savior was expected? And then what Savior was wanted? A lot of times we talk about the Jews wanting a savior or a deliverer who just wanted to overthrow Roman rule. And and the honest truth is that the issue is way too complex to answer it just in that way. That's a caricature of what was actually happening. Because you see, around this time, under the Roman Caesars, It was the first time in hundreds of years that the Jews enjoyed true religious freedom and even their own religious courts. They weren't required to speak Greek. The only thing Jews were required to do that really upset them was that they had to pay taxes to Caesar. For everything else, the Romans were hands off. 
So the Jews were in this spot that was really, really sweet. And only actually a small handful of Jews were looking to overthrow Roman rule at the time. But that doesn't negate the fact that most Jews were still looking for a savior. Some sects within Judaism, they were, they were, they were looking for a warrior king. Like the early part of David's reign, strike down the enemies of God. Other sects were waiting for a peace, a peace king in the lineage of David. That is, they knew it would come from David, but they were looking for a king, much like David in his later years, when there was peace. And he would establish peace upon the earth. And then other, um, other Jews were looking for, believe it or not, not a king, but actually a messianic priest to rule over the people. That the office of the king would actually be displaced by the office of the priest. But what the Jews got was a savior in a feeding trough. What do we need saving from? What do we need saving from? The right, the right Christian answer is sin and death. The Bible talks a lot about sin, talks a lot about death. That's the right answer. It just is. But is that our daily practical answer? When you leave here, Monday, Monday at 8 a.m., Wednesday at 4 p.m., is that your answer? For me, it's oftentimes not. It's just not. What do we want saving from? We want saving from we want saving from unemployment and underemployment. It's a hard place to be. We want our children to be saved from their waywardness. We want to be saved from illness. We want to be saved from conflict. We want, to, we want to be saved from an unknown future. This is why a number of uh, influences in Christianity nowadays, is, it's like, well, I don't know my future, so I need to pray to God until I get peace about doing a particular thing, and then I know that that's going to be the case. We just don't see that in Scripture. Abraham didn't have peace before he left Ur. You think Moses had peace talking before Pharaoh? No, they did it by faith. What do we need saving from? Boredom. Have you looked at how many hours you spent on Netflix recently? I haven't because I'm terrified. Terrified. 
If I were to ask you this question, how would you respond? Right now, what is the biggest problem in your life? Please don't say it out loud. What is the biggest problem in your life? If you don't answer with the response, me, then you've lost focus on why you even need a Savior. And of course, Christmas is going to be boring to you. The idea of the incarnation is... Because whatever is happening out there, and some of these things are tragic, and God wants to hear our prayers about our wayward children. He cares about our illness. He cares about our joblessness. He actually cares about those things as a good father. But when those things take over the priority of the way that I view my life, and my sin somehow dissipates, and those things become the biggest problem, we got a problem. It's like G.K. Chesterton wrote into the newspaper when the newspaper said, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote in and said, dear sir, me. And talking about what we need to be saved from, what should be the focus of our desires? It's a lot like the, the tag that we sing in the song, Come Thou Fount, save me from, from my sin and from myself. And we know from Scripture that the result of my sin is death. What we need saving from is that. And so for us, all the way back to the shepherds, all the way back to Mary and Joseph, we need to approach God much like a child approaches a parent. Parents, who knows best what your child needs? You or them? Of course, you do. Our children, our children wouldn't make it without us. They'd eat sugar until they died. Right? Every day would be Halloween. So for the Christian, who knows best what you need? You or your father? Of course your father, because he's good. And what he gave you was not an antidote to unhappiness, not an antidote to joblessness, not an antidote to wayward children. What he gave you was an antidote to sin and death. He gave you a savior. We need a savior. And the way that, the, that it lines up here, not merely a savior, but look at the second two titles, a, a Christ and a Lord. A Christ, Christos, from the Hebrew Messiah, Mesach, right? He's the promised one, the one that the entire Old Testament is looking forward to from Genesis 3 on, fulfilling the promises of God to, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, 
on the way to David. He is the promised one. And then also Lord. And this is such a weird word for us because nowhere else in your life will you say the word Lord other than talking about the faith, right? If you do, man, that's weird. So what is it? He's king. I think at one point, a while back, I said, he's a totalitarian dictator, but he's good. That's what this is. So not only in the savior aspect, right? He saves us from our enemies, sin and death. That's great. But from the Lord, the king aspect, not only does he save us, he defeats them. He crushes them into the ground so that they will exist no longer. We need him to be savior and Messiah and king. And this brings us to our last point. Born a savior for you. Look at the text. When it says in verse 11 here, for unto you is born this day. The Greek literally says, for to you is born this day. What does it mean that he's born to you? If you notice the context, who's he, who's he talking to? He's not talking to Mary. He's not talking to Joseph. He's talking to shepherds who don't know this boy from Adam, right? It would be much like if we had someone in our congregation, a woman who gives birth, and then we go over there to rib crib, and we approach someone at their table and say, born to you this day is this baby. That baby doesn't have anything to do with this person and that person with that baby. So why would the angel say it in this way? Born to you. I think it's very simple. It shows that the birth of the Savior Christ King is for everyone. It's for you, parents. It's for you, dirty shepherds. It's for you, wise men or kings. It's for whoever would believe on him. It's for our little ones. It's for our old ones. It's for our ill ones and our healthy ones. It doesn't matter who. For to you is born this day a Savior. And what does this show us of the eternal Son of God? What does this show us of his desires behind, uh, behind it? That in Scripture would say, for, for to you is born this day. What does show us of his, of his desires? 
Very similar to what we see in Hark the Herald Angels saying the second verse. When it says, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Pleased. He was pleased to be a baby for you. As man. He was pleased to be a man for you. With men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That his becoming incarnate was absolutely necessary for your salvation. And you would never come to the Father except through him and his finished work. And he was pleased to do that. If we keep hearing the same story over and over, sometimes it does get boring. We study it. We go into it. We begin to see all that's wrapped up in what it means for a Savior to be born for you. And it opens our eyes again and again to the beauty of the incarnation of the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that it pleased you to be made man, to take on our infirmities, to suffer, die. Help us in, as we approach the Lord's Supper to partake of this and realize this is yet a symbol again of the fact that you were incarnate. We put this in your hands as we are in this season and think about the ways that you've blessed us, we ask, according to the scriptures, you would help us to be generous givers. So enable us to do that. And we ask that from whatever is given to Trinity, that we would be able to use it to glorify your name. Amen.